Hi, I'm Kyle Caldwell, and in this bonus episode of On The Money, we speak to Keith Harris, known as the city's Mr. Football. Keith is a former investment banker with a distinguished career as a senior corporate finance and takeover advisor, leading on the acquisitions of dozens of top professional football clubs, including Chelsea, Newcastle, West Ham, Aston Villa, Fulham, and Manchester City. II's Richard Hunter caught up with Keith a couple of weeks ago and started by asking him how his early experiences and instincts led to a career in banking and ultimately football. Well, had I been more successful as a footballer, <laughs> those early instincts would have taken me down a different path. It would be fair to say that was the background I grew up with, um, um, near neighbours of Manchester United, who I supported from no age, basically, yep. soon after the Munich air crash. And it was my love. All the kids, we played football in the street in the winter, cricket in the street in the summer. And then as things developed, other things took a grip, but football was always at the heart of it. In those days, of course, football wasn't a business. It was a mm -hmm. sport that you loved, you played, and you watched. And then those instincts changed a little bit. I found my way to university, first one in the family to do that. The interest I had was in economics, finance. My father was an accountant. I knew I didn't want to be an accountant, that was for sure, but I did love economics. And I went through university playing football for a short while with a professional team. That was the end of my football ambitions, really, when I was told in no uncertain terms, your brain's a good deal better than your left foot and your right foot. <laughs> Which team was that out of interest? Bradford Park Avenue. Okay. Yep. So it was it was great. It was great. Um, the biggest hooray when I was told that was from my father, who said, I didn't send you to university to become a footballer. And then from there, the academia gripped me. I graduated at a terrible time in the economy in the early 1970s. I had the chance to go to Oxford on a scholarship. That was something that I would have dearly loved to do, but it was an 18-month MPhil course. I was also offered a PhD, which was very flattering. And that was three years. So I thought that would take us over the recession. And so academia was in me then, and it gave me the chance to play football at a more appropriate level for my skills. <laughs> Fair enough. And, and did you have any idea when you entered the world of merchant banking that it would be so successful for you? And, and what do you think made it so successful for you? So the PhD subject that I wrote about emanated from my interest in what was microeconomics. There's no point in getting too too deep into sure. that, but it wasn't the big economics of the of the government. It was more corporate economics, and it was I wrote about markets. And in writing about markets, I was introduced or introduced myself to some merchant banks. Two of them took an interest in helping me, and uh, both of them offered me jobs. So that was terrific. And I joined one, which was a brand new bank, so-called consortium bank, owned by six of the world's major commercial banks, and went on a credit course to kind of hone skills. And at first, it was terrifying. It was new. It was it was different from all the books I'd read about merchant banking. And then after a while, I got used to it and did a lot of business in America. I was young. I was sent to America on deals. It gripped me. First time I'd been to the States and the first time I was sent was as a replacement for my senior who couldn't go and his senior couldn't go. So I just went with the boss who I'd never met and we traveled on Concord to New York, which as a 23, 24 year old was yeah. Yeah, a bit special. And as I went through the, 
the ranks, it became became clear this was something I loved. It then looked much more like the books I'd read. I was approached by a very established, famous merchant bank called Morgan Grenfell. It's the same Morgan as Morgan Stanley and uh, J.P. Morgan, except the British Morgan came first. Right. And joined them um, to do capital market work, again, focusing on the United States and Canada. So I spent a lot of my time there. And after a while, I thought, actually, I can, I can do this. I quite enjoy this. From being the guy taking the notes and writing up the, the detailed prospectuses to doing the one doing the talking and then forming views and then advising people who actually listened. And, and that was flattering when you're talking to serried entrepreneurs or very senior uh, personnel in big companies. And you think, my goodness me, they're listening. <laughs> and sometimes they're doing what you suggest and sometimes it comes off well. So that's that was a good feeling. And then confidence grew. And I thought, actually, I can do this. And there are senior people. I wondered how they became senior. Um, and anyway, I became a director very, very young. And they sent me to run the business in New York. And I was just 30 then. So that was, that was, it was a young city yeah. and I was a young guy in it. And then realized that, um, yeah, there was a, there was no glass ceiling. Um, there was a huge corporate marketplace to to work in. Some wonderful companies, incredibly professional people, and I learned a lot. And as I learned a lot, I got better at what I was doing. And then I thought, actually, perhaps I could go. I could go further in this. So, how did you come to be regarded in the business world as Mister Football? <laughs> so, wind the clock forward. Uh, yep. when, I, when I was living in America for the first time, I actually made some money. I changed jobs. I was headhunted to run the international business of a major US investment bank. And then that's when I realized that for them, international was brand new because America was so big. Yep. There was still 300 million people, massive companies. And to do something international, you couldn't do it from, you just couldn't do it from America in the same way. You had to be somewhere at the center of the time zones. Asia at that stage was still pretty new in its progression to becoming a, a major source of capital. So London was the obvious place. And I came back with some money. And it was at the time when the first football initial public offerings were being made. And one of them was Manchester United, the team, as I said, I'd grown up loving. And I thought, this has not gone well. It was a tiny, tiny offering. There'd been no interest in the shares. And so I bought some shares and could have bought more and was then introduced both to the chairman and to the chief executive, Martin Ebers, who became a good, a long-standing friend, still is, the chairman, Roland Smith, a famed industrialist in, in Britain who sadly died quite young, quite some while ago. He subsequently became one of my consultants when I became chief executive at HSBC's investment bank. And I think in, in all that, looking at the football business, you realize it was on a roll. And then of course, Sky announced what it was gonna be doing. And at that stage, I just arrived at HSBC. Um, the Premier League was brand new. A few people scratching their head thinking, is this really very different from being division one? Well, soon it became very apparent because it was live football. And uh, Sky had to raise capital and Samuel Montague, which was the company that I originally joined as 
chief executive owned by HSBC, uh, had been appointed to uh, to raise the bank capital for uh, Sky, for B Sky B. It was a billion pounds in the early 1990s. That was a vast sum of money. And I remember the underwriting commitment from um, Samuel Montague was huge. It was 250 million pounds. And that was my introduction to football. I met Murdoch, got on well with him, asked him uh, if he liked football. And he said, no, but my guys tell me you guys do. <laughs> and what you don't get is what we get in America, which is live football on television. And then it clicked, put the dishes on the roofs. Everything was about content. And I saw his business plan. And his business plan was driven by content to supply 24-hour coverage of all these channels that, I mean, we still only had four, maybe five at that yep. stage, yep. terrestrial channels. And suddenly it was a different world. And the early payments um, to buy the broadcast rights were actually pretty low in contrast with five billion today, obviously, but it became a business. So I got to doing bits and pieces for clubs. Uh, Manchester United became a client. I went after them because I thought, A, they were the best, they were the most commercial, they were my love. So it was a great opportunity to combine real business with true pleasure. And then started doing initial public offerings of others, financing other clubs, keeping strict walls between the teams that worked on it. And then it dawned that actually this could be a real business as a huge environment, international, domestic, media, football as the content. And then I started doing takeovers. And I say, I, that's too flattering. Um, we advised clubs that were looking to do takeovers. And the first big one I was involved with uh, was in 2003, so 20 years ago. By that stage, um, I decided to have another life. I'd become chairman of the Football League, um, which is interesting experience in its own, in its own right. You'll be familiar with some of the ups and downs that sure. the Football League had. But I met a lot of people, huge number of people, and got to mix with the heads of uh, the FA, the heads of the Premier League, as well as obviously all the Football League and the chairman. And um, the first major takeover, I said 2003, was the sale of Chelsea to Roman Abramovich. And one thing led to another. I advised on the purchase of Aston Villa, uh, the purchase of Manchester City by former Thai Prime Minister Thaksin Shinawatra, and and then it rolled. Um, and a journalist wrote a very flattering piece for Sunday Telegraph, I think, and he dubbed me Mr. Football. And right. I thought there were one or two others that perhaps had a prior claim to that. You know, Richard Scudamore's <laughs> at the Premier League for one, but it stuck. And then it was a, more a question of answering the phone rather than picking up the phone and saying, yeah. "Is there something I can do to help you?" So what's your most, apart from all of that, what's your <laughs> most significant memory associated with football and uh, football and commerce? I think probably the takeover of Manchester City okay. for Tax in Shinawatra, which was a very difficult deal to do. Manchester City, first of all, was a public company. So they were governed by the takeover code. Um, they had some major shareholders uh, who could swing the, the ball one way or the other. The chairman then, John Wardle, had just taken occupation of the former Commonwealth Stadium, uh, now the Etihad, obviously, in Manchester, which was transforming the eastern part of Manchester, which was pretty difficult then. It was a very tough environment. And I thought it, I thought it was wonderful. Taksin was essentially on the run, <laughs> politically motivated attempts to grab his assets. 
every time he landed somewhere, there was a policeman following him. And so with all this in complete secrecy, we plowed ahead. You know, with public companies, you have to have in your client account sufficient money to buy all the yeah. shares. Yeah. I had that. I had calls from every which part of, um, of the government who were on notice. So every day I spoke to a, an individual from relevant government department. Have any, have any attempts been made to withdraw money from the client accounts? Any more money gone in? They were obviously worried about A, money laundering, and B, him transferring money. This, actually, a more straightforward guy I could never deal with. And I think back of all those days as a youngster advising people, some of whom listened. Here I was, pretty senior at that stage, certainly in age. And he and I struck up a wonderful relationship. He was a great listener, a wonderful wonderful um, guy to advise and we found some loopholes in some of the debt that Manchester City had taken on which enabled us to do the deal and remarkably we bought the entire club for about 40 million pounds <laughs> wow <laughs> so that was that was amazing that was amazing now in more topical news uh, we've had the slightly eyebrow raising situation of a 10 point deduction for Everton in the mm. Premier League mm. Um, there's also, of course, some reports that the likes of Chelsea and Manchester City are, always, are also being investigated. Can you explain to us exactly what's going on at the moment and whether potentially this could be the thin end of the wedge? Oh. God, that's a real tough one, isn't it? Because I think, I think there's no doubt that the Premier League and its independent commission, you have to ask others how they interact with one another. I can't, can't give a view on that. I can give a view, but it, it will be as much media-led uh, as anything else. Mm. There are some, obviously some suspicions that it's not entirely independent, but I think it would be fair to say that in doing a points deduction rather than a fine for what, okay, whether it's 19 or 24 million pounds that is the swing, the swing sum, Everton obviously did somewhat lose its way. I've been deputy chairman of Everton. You probably know it was the last big takeover I was involved with advising um, Fahad Mashiri and Bill Kenwright as an honest broker between them. Um, and it had every reason to go well. And then it, it didn't quite go well. Some of the recruitment was bad and everything else. And then, you know, when you, when you play high stakes, the, the losses can be huge, the gains can be huge, but it's very different. You know, going to a poker game where the uh, where it's a five pound ante, you don't need much capital. Going to a poker game where it's five thousand pounds ante, you need a lot of capital. Just as an example, and capital was put in, and and clearly it didn't go well. It did not go well. And then at the same time, Farhad was massively ambitious um, and was uh, intent on building a fabulous stadium, which it is an incredible stadium, and that was one of my responsibilities. It had been when um, I was on the board of Wembley. My job there was to help raise the money to build the new Wembley Stadium. So that was that was still reasonably fresh in my mind. So the 19 or 24 million pounds that they, in quotes, misrepresented uh, which, as being allowable or not allowable, um, I think came home to roost. And then I think they've been pilloried for it. 10 points is a big, a big points deduction. When I go back to the the circumstances that um, prevailed when West Ham took in uh, Mascherano and Tevez, 
on third-party ownership. That was in the midst of me advising the Icelanders on buying West Ham, and that that really blew up. And in in that case, of course, there was a relegation. Sheffield United were relegated. Uh, it might have been another club, might have been West Ham. Uh, Sheffield United were, and they got a financial reward. In this case, a ten-point penalty. I think it was cleverly cast because twelve points was talked about, six points was talked about, ten points took them as second bottom, but really in the mix of those clubs that are all fighting, already fighting for their lives. I can only say, I think the decent reason that this is regarded as something of a sprat to catch a very big mackerel. Um, if they have one offence worth 19 or 24 million pounds, Manchester City, by all accounts, has 115 counts against them. Chelsea, it's beginning to to come out then under the Abramovich era. Mm-hmm. There were some um, some payments made that weren't authorised or weren't legal. In the case of Manchester City, there are an awful lot of uh, press coverage initiated by, I think, a German journalist, which has taken a huge currency. And if this is the case, against the background of a regulator being appointed, then you can see that the Premier League is is beginning to say, forget corruption in Italy, forget corruption in Spain, tax offences, this is the Premier League, we need to clean our house. And Manchester City clearly owned by Abu Dhabi. We've already seen Saudi Arabia buy into Newcastle, um, huge furore there for a whole host of reasons. They've behaved extremely well, I think, as owners. Abu Dhabi has a big relationship with the British government. It will be fascinating to see, but the the groundwork seems to be laid for points to be deducted. And if 10 are being deducted from Everton for that offence, then one wonders what points could be deducted, deducted from Manchester City, from Chelsea, and then does the investigation go further and look at other clubs? Absolutely. Well, it's certainly one that's going to have... Uh... Further Re- and that, big repercussions, sure. big repercussions. Okay, um, so finally, Keith, what's happening at the moment? What what other interests? What are, what are you up to? So, if I go back to one of the original questions you asked, one one of the things that really fascinated me, interested me about merchant banking, was that, and I feel really sorry for all those people who go to work and every day is a repetition of the day before and. Uh, precursor of the day that follows. The one thing that I loved about it was you never knew what you were going to be facing. And I had the the privilege of dealing with some fabulous companies. Um, I, I started financing Comcast um, when they were a small cable TV company. I raised just over $20 million for them when they were capitalized at $80 million. They're now a $180 billion company. I raised money for Walmart when they were a, a regional a retailer in Arkansas, Texas, and they're now the largest retailer in the world. Comcast Sports Guy, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yes, yeah. they did. Um, and obviously, have NBC as well, yeah. which is yeah. probably probably one of the, probably one of the best broadcasters, I think, um, sure. of football outside England. Um, so it was that variety. Um, so when when i got the chance to do broader things i became chairman of a gene therapy business in the united states um, and and britain and now i have no scientific background but there are more scientists nobel prize winners on that board than you could shake a stick at 
and it's doing fabulous things to improve uh, people's health, correct blindness in certain cases, dealing with the aftermaths of cancer in certain, in certain cases. And it's a privilege to be involved with that. I love it, absolutely adore it. And it's a, it's a tough environment. The um, bi biotech sector is a very tough yeah. one, but this is doing great things and giving the chance to make money for the shareholders at the same time. That's one, and the other one is another need. It started as a, an interest, um, but dealing with Comcast led me to get an understanding of communication. And just before COVID hit, I mean, really, when it was just beginning to be worded, I got involved in a business to provide rural broadband services in Britain. And then COVID came, and no one wished COVID on anyone, but it did emphasize the need to be able to work at home, be educated at home, uh, to live in your work environment. Yeah. And I have a home in Scotland, in deep rural Scotland, which I used to love because the phone stopped within about 10 miles of it and didn't start again until you were 10 miles away from it. And then you realized you can't survive like that. Yeah. And I think broadband has become now almost, a, in fact, it's fast becoming a utility. It's not a, oh, I want to be, it's now a has to be. And uh, the company I formed has now merged its interests with a major infrastructure company in America, which has merged its interests with a major, probably the major infrastructure financier in the world, Macquarie. And I have a stake in that. And so it's a company called Global Connectivity. And I'm, I work really hard. I'm the chairman of that company. It owns 15% of one part of the business. It's fascinating to me. And I'm a big beneficiary in this tiny village in Scotland. We have fiber. Um, yeah. I live in Chelsea. We don't have fiber. We have copper. It's terrible. <laughs> uh, and so that's, that's my other interest. Thank you once again for listening. If you enjoyed the episodes, please leave us a rating or a review and follow the show in your podcast app. And if you get a chance, tell a friend about it too. You can join the conversation, ask questions and tell us what you'd like us to talk about via email on otm at ii.co.uk. And you can, of course, find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interactive Investor website at ii.co.uk. See you on Thursday.